All right, here we go. All right, it's good to be back on this piece of real estate. I, I, I cherish this, and I'm grateful to Mikey and Chris and Ken and Clay, who all stood in, in this place and proclaimed God's word faithfully the last four weeks. And I'm just, we're just blessed to have um, folks like that that are able and willing to do that. And so um, I hope that when you see them, you will continue to encourage them and thank them for, for doing that because um, it's a joy for them, but it's, it's work and it's a little terrifying at times. So um, just, uh, just be grateful and then just continue to pray for whoever is, is in this opportunity, this, this place of privilege and responsibility. I'm just going to continue to pray for them. So today, we're going to answer the question, what's the Last Supper all about? Which means we'll get into the Lord's Supper, and you'll, you'll figure out how those are connected. Basically, the Last Supper births the, the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper reminds us, both of them actually, remind us of the incredible love of God. I think Romans 5.8 is one of the best verses to describe that. When Paul writes to the Christians in Rome... But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that, that verse just keeps resonating with me. Somebody asked me this week, what's your favorite verse? And I wasn't really, I don't have, quote, a favorite verse. I have some go-to verses. But that's the one that came to mind. And I think it's because at the end of the day, I need God's love. And if it's not for God's love, I am no use to anyone. I am no good to him. I'm no good to you because I have nothing to offer. But because of God's love, his love flows through me and out, and now I have something to offer that's actually worth something. Okay, And that's going to come out in a lot of different ways, and it's going to come out of you too in a lot of different ways, Being you being you, which is what your job is. You have one job, right? Be you. Be the best version of you that God intended. That's what he wants from us. So um, I've been wrestling with which story to open with, Okay, because I... When I ran through this this morning, I went way too long. Okay, so I'm going to pick one of the two stories. All right, so the, first, the story I'm going with is, uh, let's go with the one. Okay, so I had lunch with four guys, three other guys this week, um, two of which I'd never met. All three were believers. All three were in ministry. None of them are pastors. I'm the only pastor at the table, so there's four of us eating lunch. A guy next to me, I just met that morning, and then the two other guys. We eat lunch. The server comes and goes and does her thing, and um, at as she's starting to pick up plates, and we're just getting started talking. This is one of those longer lunches. The guy on my left asks her if she knows Jesus. And I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> because I don't, I don't do that very often. I'm not comfortable with, uh, with that. And, it, and God uses it, and God has used it, and he's going to continue to use it. But, okay, I'm getting to know these people, right? And so he, she gives an answer that pretty much indicates, eh, probably not. If so, it's a way back. Maybe grew up in church, but there's just no, there doesn't appear to be a passion there. So he shares the gospel with her. And so if you've ever been around that, you know that can be a little awkward when it feels like that person doesn't want to hear what you've got to say. And, but he does. He's faithful. He does a good job with it. She's, she's like, I'm good, thanks. I appreciate you sharing. And she moves on. The table goes quiet. I look to my left, and I see this guy, his head is buried in his hands. I'm like, uh-oh. He comes up, and he's crying. I'm not crying. <laughs> I'm about to cry, but I'm not crying in that moment. Because I realize he's crying because 
it grieves him, and I figured this out through the conversation, that she walked away from Christ and all that he has to offer. That she doesn't understand and comprehend the love of God. And I see the love of God in him in a broken heart, but because of where she is at that, at that moment. And so then I'm just covered with shame because I didn't have that feeling at all. And I realized that's a cold heart, at least in that moment, right? And so as I was preparing for today, yeah, you got to get up and preach even when your heart's not where it needs to be, right? That Sunday's coming every week. And so as I'm, as, but God uses that to, to work me over in a good way and to say, you know, there's a reason why our hearts aren't always on fire in love with him. Okay, there's lots of reasons. Some of them are even legitimate for, to a level, to a degree. But what, what I came to understand is that he's going to talk about his love in this passage. And, and some of us will leave this building unmoved. Some of us will quit watching online in the partway through because we'll be unmoved. And some of us will tear up and be moved deeply. Some of us will move from enemy of God to child of God today. Some of us will just be child of God moving closer to God today. And so I, I realize that this is going to land on a lot of different people a lot of different ways, and that's, just, that's every week. That's every week. But when you, when you have been a Christian for longer than five years, and you've been hearing the preaching of the uh, good preaching for, for years, and you've been hearing the gospel shared, it's not hard for your heart to start to calcify and harden and all of a sudden, your sensitive love for God, it kind of gets crusty and stale, and it kind of it becomes something you just take for granted. And my prayer today is that God would break our hearts for what breaks his. I'm to use the song phrase, that we would, he would break our heart for the love of God. Both the love of God that he shows us but also the love of God he wants to show through us to other people. And if you've ever been a part of that, you know that is a joy to be a part of. So we're going to be in Matthew 26. If you'll go ahead and turn there, if you're, you're grabbing a Bible from under the chair, I think it's page 809. Matthew 26. Now, Ken launched us into this last week, and, and he took us through 16 verses. We're going to start in verse 17, and we're going to go to 30. Lord willing, and the power's still on when I'm done, okay? So um, we're going to—now, um, one of the things I learned, I'm learning, okay, because I'm always learning. I'm like 10 seconds ahead of you guys when I'm, whenever I'm preaching. I'm, I'm like, I'm preaching stuff that some of these people know better than I do, but sometimes I'm a little ahead of you. And what I'm learning is that from chapter 26 to the end of Matthew, which is 28 chapters, this is the crux of the whole book. This is the story of stories, okay? If you want to know what's the story of this library called the Bible, it's really summarized in chapters 26, 7, and 8. And some commentators have even said that some people will say that the book of Matthew is about that story with 25 chapters of introduction. And, I mean, what an introduction, right? We've seen Jesus has all authority over disease and death and demons and the devil and and his disciples, and he's got all authority, and, and that's why he calls and, and, and 
and, and challenges us, all nations, to, to pledge all allegiance to him. But it's not about some academic exercise that happens in our head. Knowledge is essential. Truth is part of that understanding, comprehension, essential. But if there's no heartbeat to it, if there's no, I feel, right, then it's hard for us to be moved by just an intellectual exercise, right? This is why we love stories, movies, books, epic tales, right? Well, I want you to think about some of the best ones that you read about, you listen to. And I want you to think about what is it about those stories that moves you? Uh, 2010, my daughter and I were... um, She's a senior in high school, our oldest daughter. We homeschooled our kids, and so we had a lot of flexibility on the schedule. Kelsey and I decided we were going to go do our senior trip to Nashville, where our favorite author at the time was doing a one-day gathering with his fans. Ted Decker is his name. And so we made the road trip up to, to Nashville, and we spend the day with 200 of his craziest fans, because who, who spends time with the authors of the books they read, right? <laughs> but we did it, and we had a blast. It was a great trip. And the thing that I remember about the trip, specifically that Ted Decker himself said, was this. He said, this is why I write my stories, because he writes mostly novels. He said, I want to tell the story in a fresh way. And he's referring to this when he's talking about the story. He's talking about Matthew 26, 7, and 8 when he's talking about the story. Okay? Okay. To tell a true story, you have to tell truth. It's knowledge, and it requires some comprehension along the way. But there's something in the story that moves us, that we feel, that's part of who we are as people. God created us to feel deeply, more deeply than any other in creation. In fact, we're the only ones in creation to feel. I don't know about the angels. I can't speak for the angels. I don't know about them. But there are no animals that feel like people do. I'm not saying they don't have feelings, and I I don't know. But God created humanity unique. We are the treasure of his creation. We are the apple of his eye. And part of the comprehension of knowing God is not just knowing him here. It's knowing him here. And when I say this, the the heart, the Bible talks about the heart is the seat of our feelings as well as our our will, our volition, and our thinking. All of that is kind of encapsulated with that word heart. Well, I want to know God with all my heart, not just with all my head. We are to love him with our head, right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Boy, this is not going as I expected. So I'm going to open the Bible, and I'm going to get on track, okay? So, but God's speaking, so let's listen, wherever he, however he leaks it out of me. All right, verse 17. Here we go. Matthew writes. See, Ken came back in the room, and I got back on track. Thank you, buddy. Love you. All right. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for, the, for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples in your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed and then uh, directed them and prepared the Passover. So you see, we're already just a few verses in. He's already said the word Passover three times. That means it must be important. 
Okay, we guys in particular like to have things repeated. Ladies, repeat for us, please, multiple times. Moses, Moses, Abraham, Abraham. You get the idea, right? So God is repeating for the guys in the room at least. Passover. So that must be important, so we're going to dig into that. But let me to say, kind of give you the overall outline, just three points. Um, and they all start with I, just to help, and I didn't come up with it, but it, we're looking at the section number one that's called the instructions. Instructions. And Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus gives the disciples some instructions. Now, he actually only gives two of the disciples these instructions, Peter and John. We learn that from Mark and Luke. All right? I'm sorry, I need a tissue. So, what's the Passover? So, uh, uh, Jesus is alive, he's born, we, we call it zero, right, between B.C. and A.D. He divides time because he, he is, it's all about him. He's actually born a little before that, but details, right? Round numbers, round, he's born in zero, and we're roughly in the year 30, A.D. 30, 30, okay, just 30, no, 1930, just 30. Now, I want you to go backwards 1,500 years, okay? Now we're in the B.C., 1,500 B.C., before Christ, Moses, Round numbers, okay? Don't give me a test. All right, and, and Moses does something that you may remember. He leads Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. He delivers them from captivity, okay? That's the whole story of the Exodus. If you want to read about it, the book of Exodus, highly recommend it. Great reading. Okay, so Jesus is talking about the Passover. So where does the Passover fit in? If you remember the story... Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like a king or an emperor. He goes to Pharaoh uh, of Egypt, and he says, God told me to tell you, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And let my people go, no. And this goes on and on and on, nine rounds now. And after every one of those no's, God sends a plague, okay? And every one of those plagues is different, and they devastate the region of Egypt, and affecting the Egyptians, sometimes the Israelites, but mostly just, at some point, it's just the Egyptians. And God's driving home a point. He's making a point. All your fake gods don't have a, they don't hold a candle to me. But it, as we head into the 10th plague, this is like, this is the last one, because this one is going to be the deal breaker for Pharaoh, and he's going to say, get out of here. And the last plague is that God is says, God says, on a particular night, the angel of the Lord is going to come through and he's going to kill every firstborn son of every family that doesn't follow my instructions. And his instructions are detailed, and I won't get into them other than to say they need to have a, a one-year-old, unblemished male lamb. And they need to slaughter that lamb on that night and paint the door frame of the house with the blood of that lamb. And there's, you know, they, they roast the lamb and they eat the lamb and there's certain prescriptions for all of those details. They have to be ready to go because that's the night they're going to be freed from slavery, delivered from Egypt. But the, the main thrust of the thing is paint your doorframe with the blood of the lamb. And the angel of the Lord will come and when he sees the blood of the lamb on your house covering your doorframe, he'll pass over it and not take the life of the oldest male. Okay. And that's why it's called Passover. And the reason they and then after that they get out, they escape. You know, they're they're freed from uh, Egypt. And God tells them one of the first things He tells them to do is a nation. Now they're becoming a nation because they were just a bunch of slaves. Now they're a nation of delivered slaves, free people for the first time and as a nation. He says every year I want you to celebrate the Passover meal that will remind you of that meal the night I delivered you from slavery. 
under the blood of a little lamb that you took into your house for two weeks, you named it, you got attached to it, and then you had to cut its throat because it takes the blood of an innocent. And that lamb is foreshadowing something that we're going to also have you remember. But for them, 1,500 years, it's remember, I delivered, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt, okay? That's how you know who God is and what he's done at the end of the day. Okay, fast back to here. So uh, then you have this uh, festival of unleavened bread. The Passover meal was one night in a week-long celebration called the Passover of the unleavened bread. I'm not going to get into that. There's three major festivals. I'm not getting into all that. But this is one of those weeks. The timing is providential. The timing, that means God's doing this on purpose. All right? This is the kind of will of God that nobody can change. Providential will of God. It's going to happen. He is going to remake this world. It's going to happen. There's nothing we can do to change that. Okay? And he's going to rescue his people. There's nothing that's going to change that either. Okay? So we have this festival, and they're, they're, they're doing what they did the year before, and the year before, and the year before. The disciples are finding a room. I don't know if it's the same room. And they're gathering with Jesus to celebrate the Passover meal together as disciples. And so they say, how do you want us to prepare? Jesus said, go get that room I just told you about. We'll call it the upper room. How clever. It's the one upstairs, right? And so there we go. And, and, they, and they do all that they are instructed to do. Jesus and, and Matthew says, Passover lamb. Why is that a big deal? Because... This is Friday of Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. And we, I'm sorry, this is Thursday. On Friday, Jesus will die on the cross. The next day, Jesus knows this. The disciples have been told, eh, not all the details, but they know he's going to be handed over to be crucified. They're about to find out one of them is going to be the ones to betray him. This is really not going, this is not a good week for, this, for the 12. And, and all of that's happening because... The Passover lamb that they celebrate for the past 1,500 years, they're going to learn is foreshadowing the Passover lamb that is in their presence in that moment. If you'll remember early in Jesus' ministry, just three, three, three and a half years earlier, John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching the River Jordan where he's baptizing people, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose blood, he doesn't say this, but whose blood will be shed for us so that the angel of the Lord will pass over us and not give us what we deserve, which is the eternal wrath of God, but will deliver us from that. That's why we love mercy. This is why we sing about blood. This is why we sing about a cross and an instrument of execution. It's like, why do we make such a big deal of that? It's so morbid. It is because somebody died for you, for real, for me, because of our sin. All right, point number two, indictment. The indictment starts in verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Now, he's not in a lazy boy. They reclined a little differently. They literally had a table that was just inches off the floor, and they lay on, I don't know how exactly, I'm thinking on their elbow. So they're leaning on one elbow, and they're eating with the other, which may, I would drive me crazy. My arm always goes to sleep when I do that, right? And, and maybe 45-degree angles as they go around the table. Sorry, Da Vinci. They weren't sitting in chairs, and they weren't all facing the same way. Okay, but cool painting. I'm all for it. All right, so they're, they're sitting around the table. 
There's, uh, there's some kind of salsa they're dipping into. There's pita-like bread that's been lightly toasted that they're breaking and digging in with. There's wine uh, in, a, in a chalice or a cup, and they're passing it around and enjoying that. Um, and, and so they're, they're having this Passover meal and all other pieces that go with that, the lamb and, and all the other spices and things that are prescribed by the Passover meal. But Jesus is going to transform the meal. He's going to change it. That's why they call it the Last Supper. It's, you, really, it's the last Passover meal. And while there's nothing wrong with celebrating that, I have no problem with that. I don't think the Bible has a problem with that. There's a purpose in what's happening in this Passover meal. He is transforming, and he's basically saying kind of like uh, this new meal is going to um, replace, fulfill the old meal. But the goal is the same. Remember. Remember that. Sorry. All right. So uh, verse 22. So they were very, oh, oh, sorry, 20. So they're reclining at the table. And while they were eating, Jesus drops another bomb. Truly, I tell you, which means write this down. I don't think they needed to. I think they'd never forget it. One of you will betray me. Now, Ken preached last week, just two days before this. So Tuesday of this week, verse two, as you know, the Passover is two days away, Jesus says to his 12. And the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. So they already know Jesus is going to be crucified. Well, they already know Jesus thinks the Son of Man, whoever that is, is going to be crucified. Now they know that he's referring to himself. That's Old Testament speak for Messiah. And they know because he's been, he stopped dropping hints and he's just kind of been out there saying, Son of Man, right here, Son of God, right here, right, Messiah. So they're extremely nervous because if he's right, and they're hoping he's not, He's going to be crucified on a Roman cross, which means they're next. And we're going to get a, a hint in this passage. We're going to get a hint that they're all thinking about bailing. Okay? And a couple of them try to. Actually, one does. So we'll watch how this unfolds. All right, so truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Some of your translations say, is it, is it I, Lord? Is it, is it I? This is a question we all should be asking ourselves. Okay? I don't have time to run down that rabbit trail, but maybe in the margin of your Bible you write, is it me, Lord? Am I betraying you? Verse 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. And I'm going, oh, Thanks, that's real helpful. They've all done that. And then I go, oh, that's the point. Haven't we all? Now, the goal here isn't just to make you feel guilty, okay? Although he's doing a pretty good job on me. I don't know about you, but um, that's not the goal. God's goal is mercy, love, deliverance, forgiveness in a communal relationship with God and his people. That's the goal. So hang on, hang in there. It's not over. All right. So uh, the one is okay. So verse twenty-four. This is big. He's making two major points here that I don't know that people really pick up on. I didn't until I dug in. He's making two. These are theological points that people have died over arguing about. Okay, and I don't recommend that, by the way. Verse 24, the Son of Man, again, referring to the Messiah, which we know is Jesus, the Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. So the first, first thing right here, right out the chute, is Jesus is saying, everything that has been written about the Messiah, 
for the past 1,500 plus years is all going to happen just as it was written. The prophecies will come. They will be fulfilled in me. He is going to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Okay? So that's big. That's big right there. So, but also what's in that is the sovereignty of God. And we're back to the providential will of God. We're back to God is doing what God wants to do because he's God. We shouldn't be surprised by those statements, and yet we push back every day. But I digress. All right, so the Son of Man will go just as has been written about him. But woe to that man. Woe is not woe Nelly, okay? This is um, Jesus speaking a word of judgment. And that's why he uses this word. Woe to, the man, to that man, specifically, who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. What does that say? It's saying someone chose, someone exercised free will to betray their own creator. Someone they had spent years with. And I don't know, ladies, how much camping y'all have done. Guys, we, we do some camping. We do some hiking. And um, you get to know people on the trail, right? Because you watch them eat, sleep, and all the other business that's taken care of in life out in nature in front of everybody when you do that, right? And so, and, and um, I know this would really shock you ladies, but when we're around the campfire and it's a bunch of guys, we tend to revert to seventh grade, okay? Just, I know that's a shocker, but so we get to know each other even better. Sometimes we say things that really shouldn't have been said, but we say them and out loud. So when, um, when we see, when you think of Jesus and the 12, you're talking about 13 men who've spent the last three plus years together doing life up close and personal. And sometimes they did sleep under the stars with a rock for a pillow. And they saw each other in all kinds of stressful, awkward, amazing situations. Okay? So that's... That's, they know each other. So there's bonding that has happened in those three and a half years. And Judas Iscariot is part of that. He has experienced some of that, so much so that the other guys never see him coming as a betrayer. They do not ever think first, he's the one that would do it. They all think they am themselves. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, and Matthew knows this in hindsight as he writes the book of Matthew, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Some of your Bibles say, is it I, Rabbi? Did you see the difference between what he said and what the others said? What word is different? Rabbi. He didn't call him Lord. He sees Jesus as a teacher, but three plus years, and he still doesn't want to call him Lord. I'm not sure that he doesn't believe it, but he betrayed him. He can't call him Lord. Not in that moment. Indictment. Jesus answered, you've said so. I'm not quite sure what that phrase means. But we know the, the end result. The third point is under the word institution, which is not a very warm, fuzzy word, especially in the days we're in today where we're pushing and away from institutions left and right. But God institutes through Jesus the Lord's Supper in this moment. And an institution, I heard Phil, uh, Tim Keller say this, 
in a, a late interview before he passed. He said, institutions are good to the extent that they bring stability and momentum over the long haul. Now, obviously, institutions can be can get can lose sense of their mission and their purpose and get off track and and end up being a shell of themselves. Okay, there's churches that are falling in that description for sure. So, um, you know, you've got to really evaluate the institution. But he is instituting a new. Um, some people call it an ordinance, a, a new um, an act. One of the two commands Jesus gave us to practice as Christians. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so that's what this last section is about, okay? And I won't be able to get into a lot of the nitty-gritty, but hopefully we'll focus on the things that really matter. And at the end of the day, it's going to come back to that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here it is, verse 26. While they were eating, so they're still on the meal, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. I think some translations add broken for you, okay, which would be in later manuscripts, but totally appropriate and actually beautiful when you think about he's breaking the bread and it symbolizes his brokenness for them, his being broken on the cross. And when I say Jesus, when we say, we say this a lot because Paul says it too about Jesus being broken, we're not contradicting the, the verses in the Psalms that say, none of Jesus' bones were broken because none of his bones were broken. The other two on the crosses next to him, they broke their legs to accelerate their deaths, but when they got to break there to break Jesus' legs, they noticed he's dead already. And then they did the spear to make sure, and of course he was. And so there was no need to break the bones, which fulfilled another prophecy a thousand years before that none of his bones would be broken. But Jesus was broken because he died. His human body was broken. Okay? So all of this breaking, I can't drill down on this like I want to, but I just want you to think about this. Okay? I'll use this one. So if you're a farmer and you want to plant wheat so that you eat bread and donuts and all of the other pastries that we like that are from bread, then you have to have seed. Good soil, we'll assume, for the, for the point right here. We plant that seed. For that seed to sprout, for life to come from the sprout, sprout of that seed, for life to come, the seed has to be dead. We say dry. It needs to be a dried-out seed. But it's got to be dead. There's no green in it. It's not soft anymore. It's just hard. looks like just a grain of something. We plant it, and God has designed nature so that life comes from death. Now, Come on, if that doesn't talk about a creator that is trying to tell us something through nature, I don't know what is. But anyway, so this dead seed springs forth with life. And so what, what happens? That means that the seed is broken, okay? And, and what comes from that brokenness? It's just pain and, and, and sorrow and, and all the other things we think about when we think of brokenness. Life. And it grows into this stalk of wheat, and it has all these heads when it matures, and, they, and, the, and the fruit of the wheat is the seed heads that are harvested. And we harvest them, and what do they do? They grind them up. What is that? That's breaking the seed down into little bits. Why? So that we can make bread, dough. We can make bread and pastries. And then when we get that loaf of bread or that cinnamon bun... What do we do? We break it and enjoy it. 
Lots of butter, right? You see that? The terribleness of brokenness in God's economy leads to goodness, leads to mercy, leads to wonder and beauty and amazing things because he's designed this to happen in the wake of the decision that goes all the way back to the beginning where Adam and Eve decided they were going to trust the lizard in the tree instead of the God who put them in the garden. All right? Just like any of us would have done if we'd been in their place. Brokenness is painful. We look at our world, and you know it's broken. There's some serious problems, and it feels like they're getting worse and worse. And yet God wants to say to you and me, I've got you there for a reason, because in the midst of that brokenness are gonna, is going to be life. I'm going to bring life. And to the extent that you and I cooperate with him and his spirit, that happens. Okay, so you've said, so while they were eating, they took the bread, he'd given thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. This is what we do when we do the Lord's Supper, right? We, we give you a piece of bread, and we're not really good at this, but what we should be saying, or at least remembering is, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, remember Jesus. Well, specifically when, Jesus, when I was hanging on the cross and my body was crushed for you. Okay? And then he continues, and he says, then he took a cup, probably picture a goblet, a, a, a chalice, something that um, if you've ever been to a church where they serve communion and everybody drinks from the same goblet, ooh, right? We all go kind of cringe, and some of us won't do it, and they wipe it and all that. It's like God doesn't know about germs or something. All right, so and they, that's what they would have had, something like that that you'd pass around, and they would all drink from it. Well, they've been doing that already. So now he's saying, I want you to do it with purpose. So now we're talking about the grape juice that we do. It's fruit of the vine. He doesn't call it wine. What does he say? He said he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, Greek word is very close to the word we get Eucharist from. You ever heard of Eucharist? That's the Episcopalian way, I think, and maybe Anglican too, of saying Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, all the same thing. They're all referring to this passage. Giving thanks, that's what Eucharist means. He gave it to them. Again, he's serving them. He served them the bread. Now he's serving them this. And he says, drink from it, all of you. And then he says what it's about. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now there's a lot there. Let me unpack. Okay, first of all, um, I'm not picking on them, but there, I'll just say it this way. There's some church denominations that believe that when you do Holy Communion, that the elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine, okay, grape juice, wine in most cases, um, in some cases, so that they literally transform into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, when I read this, I don't see that, okay? And that's just me, but I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm going, Jesus is holding the piece of bread and he says, this is my body. Well, clearly it's not his body. He's in his body, so he's symbolically saying, this is going to symbolize in the future my body. I want you to remember that my body was crushed for your iniquities. Okay? And when he brings the cup of ju uh, juice, <laughs> that's what we use, okay? Grape juice. But when he brings the cup of the fruit of the vine, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, it's not his blood. He's still alive. His blood is in his body. He hasn't shed it yet. It's symbolic. Okay. Now, here's what I'm not doing. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't a part of the Lord's Supper. 
I'm not saying his spirit isn't pleased when his people remember the cross. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm trying to say is the spirit of Jesus is with us whenever we're doing anything gospel. In fact, he's with his people 24-7, right? He pitches his tent in our heart. So I'm not saying it's purely symbolic. Clearly, God uses it in a in an amazing way. And when we gather and celebrate it, I think he does supernaturally things that he wouldn't do otherwise. That's why we do it every week. Not because it prescribes it, but because we just, why not? So unless we forget to, to pick up the bread, we usually do it, okay? And, and I think that's good, and I think that's fine. And we do it the way we do it. There, it doesn't say you have to use plastic cups with, you know, and you have to use cubed bread and all, you know, there's freedom. There's not a lot of specific instructions, so I'm not going to linger on the details. I want to linger on the rest of this verse. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. What is a covenant and what covenant is you referring to? So you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. You realize that you can also call those the Old Covenant and the New Covenant because testament means covenant, covenant means testament. I don't know why there's two different words. Why not I just use one word? I don't know. Old English. That's what I'm blaming it on the, on the Brits. Okay, so, so we have Old Covenant, New Covenant. So it doesn't say the old contract and the new contract. Why? Because a contract is 50-50. You do your part, I'll do mine. You stop, I'm not doing my part. Some marriages are that way, but that is not God's marriage way. Okay? Covenant is I'll do my part no matter what you do. 100%. And I'm asking for 100%. I'm entering into a relationship where you say 100%, and I'm, but I'm going to do 100% whether you do or not. Now, all of us fail. But God has invited us into a covenant relationship with him that is, and God and Jesus says, 100%, I'm in. Light, right, did he not prove that on the cross? He's in. He's not turning around. Me, I'm a chicken. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go through that. So, you know, when I'm tempted to save my own skin, I'm going to probably, Lord, unless the mercy of God is working and I'm actually able to follow through, I might chicken out. And that's unfaithfulness. And sometimes it's something big and sometimes it's something small, but it's all unfaithfulness. You can cheat on your wife and it's unfaithfulness. You can lie to your wife and it's unfaithfulness. We put it as levels of degree. It's all sin. Okay? So let's not, so this is about a covenant that God made with us. And he cut the covenant with blood. And I don't get into it, but go to Genesis 15 if you want to understand where the word cut a covenant came from. All I will tell you is this if you remember when Abraham's there, and there's all these animals, and God says, cut them all in half. And then there's this smoking pot that goes down the middle, and Abraham's over here asleep, and there's vultures flying. It's a really weird passage. But the whole point is, a covenant that is broken should cost you your life. Okay? You see it? When you and I break the covenant with God, we deserve to die. That's what that's about. And Jesus is like, I'm never going to break it, but I'm going to die anyway. In fact, I'm going to die to cover you when you break my covenant. That is grace, getting what you don't deserve, right? Okay, so what does the rest of the verse say? Which is poured out for many, okay, blood poured, gross, I know, but it is the blood because that's where the life is. Which is poured out for many for what purpose? Forgiveness of sins. This is how you and I find forgiveness, okay? So, um, so the, the Passover talks about the, you know, the Passover, uh, because the door frame was painted with blood, the little lamb, they believed and they acted on that. And so God passes over, that's mercy. They don't get what they deserve. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it's just the plague. They don't get the plague. And that points to Jesus and him shedding blood, not on a doorframe, but on a wooden cross nevertheless. And my faith in Jesus is getting under that blood and saying, Lord, that is what I'm trusting so that you'll pass over my sin that I deserve to die for. And he's already died for my sin. He has already done it. And so what I'm doing is I'm believing that his death on the cross for my sin was good enough that I don't need to go die for it too, okay? It's like, well, you know, if he did it already, I'm good with you doing it for me, and I owe you my life because of that. That sounds pretty weak, but that's what he's done. It sounds, my part is weak, not his part. And so he, he finishes here at 29, um, he says, I tell you, and this is going to sound out of, a little out of left field, 29 and 30, 30 kind of wraps it up. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day, that day, what day? That day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went in, out to the Mount of Olives. What day? Jesus is going to die on a cross in tomorrow, according to this passage. It's Thursday night. Judas is about to walk out and do the betrayal that he's already made the commitment to. He's already got the silver. He's going to die. How can he drink more wine with them in the future if he's going to be dead tomorrow? And this is his way of saying, I'm not staying in that tomb. And we sang about it, and we've been singing about the cross all morning, and it's totally appropriate any time, but certainly today, that there ain't no grave, right, that's going to keep us down, and no grave could keep him down, and that's why I believe he's not going to keep me down. And I hope that's why you believe and have hope that your future is in his presence in a new heaven and a new earth, which means a physical world with a physical body that will not decay or rot or hurt or gain calories or anything else that our current bodies do, except be physical. Because it's a bodily resurrection, same soul, same person, new world. So what is this Last Supper business about? It's the transition point where we move from the Passover to the Lord's Supper that he institutes for the church to do to remember his great love for us. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. It be a good verse to memorize this week. Romans 5.8. And then as we think about how do I feel about that love, am I is it just bouncing off a hard heart because I'm just so used to this? then ask God to do a work in your life so that you feel again. Ask God to move you again with the story of stories. Have an eye out for those stories, those movies where there's great sacrifice for someone else and recognize that's a, a shadow of the story. What's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Lord's Supper is to show us, remind us we've been forgiven at a great cost. And we've been brought into a community of faith, of people who have been forgiven as we are and no more deserving than we are. 
and we get to spend together forever with him. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot here. It's, I mean, I'm on the edge of being overwhelmed again, and, and I don't even fully understand half of what I've said. And I'm just grateful that, that that's enough, that your grace is sufficient, and that your spirit will continue to teach us. But Lord, I pray that today, today, we would let you do the work in our hearts, surgery, spiritual surgery on our hearts that is needed to get us to the place where we can once again sense, feel, and enjoy the, the love of God at a level that propels us and compels us into the world to share that love with others. That is the only appropriate response. That is the way to worship you 24-7 and not just with a song on our lips. Lord, that's so hard. We, we, we're weary. We feel like we're just crumbling physically, immensely, emotionally. We feel weak. We feel ill-equipped. We feel unworthy. We, we, we can make a long list. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see past those limitations, past that brokenness, and remember that it is through brokenness that you bring life and, and forgiveness and communal faith that makes all the difference in this life until we go home to be where we really were created to be, in your presence. So I pray that you'll help us believe and then begin to learn what that looks like as we learn to belong together with others who believe and want to belong. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching today. It's our hope that as a result of today that you'll grow in your desire to become the best neighbor ever where you live, work, and play. Uh, we also hope that you'll like and subscribe to the video if that's helpful and maybe even share it with others. Now for more information about our church or our online ministry, you can go to gracetoday.net slash contact and you can leave a comment and tell us how God's working as a result of the ministry that we've been doing or how we can help you if, that's, if there's a need. Um, that's gracetoday.net slash contact. And finally, if you just want to know more about how to trust and follow Jesus, you can text me. My phone is 843-830-2464. That's 843-830-2464.